If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to turn, please, to the book of Exodus this morning, and it's chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, please. Last Lord's Day, we began a little series on Psalm 46, and we're just calling that series Themes in the 46th Psalm. And we're just looking at some themes that come out of that psalm and bring us to other places of Scripture. So this morning, we're in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, and we're going to read the first 20 verses of the chapter. So if you have your Bible there, follow along with us, please. Verse number 1 of the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Exodus 19 and verse number 1. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, Then shall ye be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people, And sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready, 
Against the third day come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount, and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof descended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. God will bless the reading of his precious word to every heart this morning for his own sake and for his own glory. Now let's turn, please, in our Bibles, both, if you can, put a marker in Exodus 19, but let's just read a couple of verses again from Psalm 46, the first Two verses or three verses we'll read of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Let's pray together. And let's make a real effort to listen to what the Lord would say to us this morning. It takes effort to listen. Our minds can be distracted so easily that we want to miss the blessing of God. So let's still our hearts and let's have no distractions as we consider the Word of God together. Let's pray. Eternal Father, again, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word. We ask, O God, now for the help of the Spirit of the living God as we open the Word together. Speak into all of our hearts and lives. Lord, I need to hear thy voice too, and I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be conscious of God and God alone in the closing moments of this meeting. Hear and answer prayer. Speak into our hearts. Lead us on with yourself. Glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and grant the anointing of the Spirit of God. We pray in the Savior's name and for God's eternal glory. Amen. The opening verses, indeed the whole chapter in Psalm 46, provide us with help for hard times. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Help for the hard times. And as you begin to read through the psalm, especially in verses 2 and 3, it really shows a, a picture of a world that seems to be falling apart, tumbling down around us, maybe in the physical sense in some parts of the world, and also in a metaphorical sense in the lives of many individuals. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, Though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, 
though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. In a very real sense, these words highlight the reality of what we read about in Romans 8 and verse 22, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now. We live in a world that is broken, and that brokenness affects every area and facet of society. Primarily, man is broken spiritually. Man is also broken mentally and emotionally, and even physically, and all of creation groans and travails under the curse, because we live in a world that is a sin-cursed world. And these verses make reference to that, the possibility of the earth being removed or shaken out of its place, the mountains being carried into the midst of the sea, the waters roaring and being troubled, and the mountains shaking with the swelling thereof. And it's that little phrase there, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Reference here to physical earthquakes. We live in a world where earthquakes happen. The planet that we live on, the crust of the planet, is divided into tectonic plates, You might remember back at school days, or maybe you're still at school sitting in geography class and learning about seismic activity and tectonic plates, and those plates can move slightly, and sometimes they jar, and and then there's tremors underneath the, the crust, and those plates can suddenly be moved and shaken even a few feet, and that results in an earthquake. And we live in a world where earthquakes are prevalent. And the Bible, in fact, says that as the day of the Lord approaches, there will be more earthquakes, earthquakes in divers' places. And the Lord highlights that fact. There have always been earthquakes from the fall. But as the day of the Lord approaches, there will be more earthquakes and perhaps even more severe earthquakes. There was a very large one recently in Turkey at the beginning of the month of February. And 50,000 people, above 50,000 people, perished in that 7.8 earthquake. What a catastrophe, what a tragedy it was. Back in 1556, an earthquake struck the nation of China, and 830,000 people, almost 1 million people, lost their lives in that earthquake. And of course, if you were to experience a physical earthquake, it would produce fear. Maybe today in your own life and your own circumstances, you're maybe facing an earthquake of sorts, maybe not in the physical realm, but maybe metaphorically, maybe your world is being shaken. Maybe your mind has been shaken. Maybe your circumstances have been shaken. And there are many, many instances in the Word of God where we are spoken to concerning earthquakes. And virtually every time in the Word of God we read about earthquakes, we read as well about fear. And the first earthquake that is spoken of in the Word of God is in Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 18. The earthquake at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire 
and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. What a remarkable scene. The children of Israel have crossed over the Red Sea. They have arrived on the Sinai Peninsula. And if you were to look at a map of Israel, you'll see that the Red Sea is, is like a Y shape at the top. There are two tributaries, if you like. And in between those two tributaries, you've got the Sinai Peninsula, a diamond shape, a triangular shape. And towards the bottom of that peninsula, Mount Sinai itself. Most commentators believe there could have been above two million Israelites gathered together at Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 37, we read about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And it says, The children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children. And we assume the woman as well. So somewhere in the region of 600,000 men and women and children besides. So most believe there could have been over 2 million Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is about to speak to the children of Israel and show them how he wants them to live in giving them the moral law of God. And as it all comes together and the Lord descends upon the mount, the scripture says there was a great earthquake. It was as if the earth was being removed. And that great mountain was about to be carried into the midst of the Red Sea. God was there. And as we consider this morning this great earthquake at Mount Sinai, there are some things that I want you to consider in relation to it. As we think about Exodus 19 as a whole, gathering round the, the foot of this mountain that began to tremble and shake, it first of all speaks to us about the amazing mercy of God. The amazing mercy of God. Verses 1 and 2. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. They were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And that in itself was a fulfillment of God's promise. God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 12 and said, Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. God said, Moses, you will go to Pharaoh, you will bring my people Israel out of Egypt, and you will serve me upon the mountain. And the mountain that is spoken there is Mount Sinai. Dear friends today, you can rest assured as you begin reading Exodus chapter 19 that it is proof positive that God's word does not fail. The scripture says that the counsel of the Lord shall stand. And if God says he's going to do something, by and by God will do it. It might not be in our time scale, but God has a plan and a purpose and a time and a season 
to fulfill his will and to fulfill his word. And yet between that promise of Exodus 3 and the fulfillment of it in Exodus 19, we see God's amazing mercy. Exodus chapter 12, God redeeming the Israelite people by blood, bringing them out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, God delivering the Israelites across the Red Sea, a miracle of divine grace, God parting the sea before them and swallowing up Pharaoh's army behind them. Exodus chapter 16, their provision of bread from heaven and also the quails. Exodus 17, the provision of water out of the rock and the defeat of their enemy, Amalek. And then chapter 18, the provision of spiritual leaders. And as God reminds them of how he has led them from Exodus 12 to the beginning of Exodus 19, he says in verse number 4, I bear you on eagles' wings. And I have brought you unto myself. And he's brought them there to the foot of the mount. I've borne you on eagles' wings. I've lifted you. I've carried you. I've protected you. I've provided for you. And I've led you. And I've guided you. And now they have arrived at Sinai. And God is now going to reveal unto them how he wants them to live as his redeemed people. It's all down to the amazing mercy of God. Have you ever stopped for just a few moments and considered God's amazing mercy in your own life? I think sometimes the further we travel in life from the moment that we were converted, sometimes we tend not to meditate or think as much upon what Jesus Christ has done for us? Did you ever think about where you were whenever God began to speak to you? How he brought you to the cross and washed you in his precious blood and cleansed you from all your sins? How the Lord led you out of slavery and out of bondage and brought you into a new place with himself? Have you ever considered how the Lord has led you and provided for you? and blessed you in so many different ways, how the Lord has brought you through many difficult situations and brought you through many battles. And do you ever look back and say, like John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Have you ever said again like Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Grace has led me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. Or have you ever said recently, like Charles M. Gabriel, as he wrote that great hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Maybe you've never been able to do that because you've never experienced God's amazing mercy. Maybe you're in God's house today, but you're not in God's kingdom. Maybe you're amongst God's people today, but you're not related to God's Son. 
Maybe you can open the Word of God today, but your heart has never truly been opened to the Word of God. The Bible says, He that is forgiven much, loveth much, and he ought to thank God day and daily for His amazing mercy. Praise God for His amazing mercy. In this portion of Scripture, as we think about this earthquake in Sinai, I see the amazing mercy of God. But I also see the absolute morality of God. The absolute morality of God. As God brings the Israelite people onto that Sinai Peninsula, and as tens and hundreds of thousands of them gather around the foot of the mountain, and God is about to speak to them and show them, now that I have redeemed you, I'm going to show you how I want you to live in this present world. And he's about to formally give them the law. The Scripture says that the whole mount quaked greatly. And that indicates that this is a very solemn event. This is a very serious event. This is something that should have us standing and wonder and praise and solemnity. Because God is about to speak. And in this portion of Scripture and in the chapters following, we see the absolute morality of God. Three aspects of the law of God. Sometimes people get confused in this day and generation about the law of God, especially as it's recorded in the Old Testament. And you think about some of the sacrifices and some of the feasts and think, well, we don't keep them. We don't do those things anymore. And we don't stone people to death for gathering sticks on a, on a Sabbath day. And almost some have the idea that the whole of the Old Testament is therefore irrelevant as far as Christian conduct is concerned. But the reality is today that God's law had three aspects as far as the Jewish people was concerned. There was what we could call the civil law of God. That was the law of the land. Just as we have a law today, the law of the land, and it was to govern the Israelite people and their relations and dealings, the one with the other. And it's up to each nation now in the face of the earth to formulate their own laws, and that's why we have governments and councils and world leaders and different things. But then there was also the ceremonial law, the feasts and the sacrifices and the offerings. And that all pointed to the Savior. It all pointed to the cross. And it's all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But then there was another aspect of the law of God, and that was God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And the difference between the moral law of God and the civil and the ceremonial law of God is that the moral law of God was written by the very finger of God Himself in tables of stone. And that indicates its divine and perpetual authority. Ceremonial law written in papyrus and paper. And it's gone, it's fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law of God is binding for all ages. Because the Scripture says it was written by the finger of God on tables 
of stone. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 13. He declared unto his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. Now, friends, the reality is today, as we look at the ten commandments as they're given, none of us can keep them perfectly. And if we say, well, I'm going to try to get to heaven by keeping God's law, by keeping the Ten Commandments, we will always, always fall short. The Word of God says that by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments show us the absolute morality of Almighty God. The moral law reveals the character of an unchanging God. And it shows us that we cannot attain to God's absolute standard of perfection. But rather the law is like a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It shows us, listen, this is what God expects, God desires. You'll never be able to keep it perfectly. We break it in thought, in word, and in deed. And Galatians says the law is like a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It shows us the moral character of God. It shows us our inability to to please God perfectly. And then it points us to one Jesus Christ our Lord who kept the law and fulfilled the law in precept and in penalty. Therefore, the Word of God says in Romans 6, 14, you're not under the law, but under grace. Now, what does that mean? This is where we have to be very careful. Because some say, well, if we're not under the law, that just means that the law of God, even the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is gone. It's finished. It's away. It's it's in the past. But Paul says, do we abolish the law? Do we make void the law? He says in in, in, in Romans 3, 31, do we make void the law of God through faith? Now that we're saved by grace through faith, do we make void the law of God and get rid of it? He says, God forbid, no way. Rather, we establish the law. We're not under the curse of the law. We're not under the condemnation of the law. We're not under the law as a means of being justified But the Christian is still under the law as a simple rule of faith and practice. The moral law reveals the character of God, the things that please God, and the things that displease God. And therefore, Paul says, now that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, saved by grace through faith, not under the condemnation of the law, but you know something? He says, I delight in the law of God after the inner man. God has shown us the things that please Him. Therefore, I take delight in those things because His commandments are not grievous. As we think about this great earthquake, it shows us the amazing mercy of God that He's brought them to this place. It shows us as well the absolute morality of God, but it shows us also an awesome manifestation of God. The book of Psalms again, Psalm 68 and verse number 8, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved 
at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And this great earthquake took place. Why? Because the Almighty God of heaven had come down. And the Bible says that the earth cannot contain God. And even as God manifested something of His glory and presence, the earth where He manifested His presence began to shake. Sinai was a foreboding place. It says in verse number 3 that God was in the mount. Moses went up Unto God, and God called him out of the mountain. God was there. He had manifested his presence. And as that happened, the whole earth, the whole mountain of Sinai was all together on a smoke because the Lord descended upon the mountain. Even creation itself trembles at the very presence of Almighty God. William Cooper said, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And as God revealed Himself here to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, the whole earth began to shake. Friends, what do we really know honestly about the presence of God in our lives? What do we really know honestly about the presence of God in our meetings? Whenever we meet together, Whenever we open our Bibles, whenever we walk with God day by day, what do we really know honestly about the presence of God in our lives? This was condescension. The Lord descended, the Bible says in verse number 18. It was a visitation of God. God Almighty coming down. This is what Isaiah the prophet prayed for. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence, praying for a manifestation of the power of God. The Reverend Duncan Campbell, so often whenever he talked about the revivals in the Isles of Lewis and Harris, would, would quote from Isaiah 64. And that's what he said it was like. He said, God was everywhere. God shook the very islands from center to circumference. With an awareness of his presence, a community saturated with God. Vance Havner once said, Revival is God rending the heavens and coming down in the midst of his people. And here we see God coming down on Mount Sinai. The Bible says that the very mount trembled. It says in verse Number 11, the Lord will come down in the sight of all people upon Mount Sinai. And whenever that happened in verse number 16, not only did the mountain itself tremble, but all the people that was in the camp trembled. There was a shaking. There was a stirring. James chapter 2 says, ask the question, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, but the devils also believe and tremble. Those who really understand who God is have a reverence and a godly fear and a respect whenever they come to meet with Him. The awesome manifestation of God, the absolute morality of God, the amazing mercy of God, verse 18 as well, surely speaks about the awful majesty of God. Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. 
Because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. We're living in a day whenever many professing Christians and churchgoers write off the Old Testament as being irrelevant, and they say, well, we're not living in that dispensation anymore. We're not living in that day and generation. And and the God that we have today is not the God of the Old Testament. Many liberals try to explain away difficult portions of Scripture whenever God judged and punished sin in Old Testament times by saying that somehow God has changed. But if there's one truth that runs throughout Scripture, it's the fact that God is everlasting. God is eternal. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob, are not consumed. People who think that God has changed one day will be in for a shock. Because many times the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 12, chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18, speak again at the earth, trembling and shaking at the presence of God. Whenever Jesus Christ our Lord returns, this earth is going to be shaken as it's never been shaken before. We have got a very dim view of our God, a very fluffy, sentimental picture of God in our minds and hearts, almost like a a gigantic cosmic teddy bear that's just fluffy and soft and turns a blind eye to sin and requires nothing of us. Like the woman at the well in John 4, the Savior said, Ye worship, ye know not what. Or as Paul came to the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17, saw this big altar. Oh, they were worshiping. But on the altar were written the words to the unknown God. They didn't really understand who God was. And the further, friends, we get away from the Bible in these sentimental days that we're living in, the further we get away from the true God of heaven. Very much worship of God is a worshiping of a God of our own invention and our own imagination. We have robbed God, I believe, in our day and generation of His holiness. We have robbed God in this day and generation of His righteousness. We have robbed God of His justice. We have perhaps even robbed God of His very being. I suppose today it's safe to say that the average 19-year-old Mormon missionary could tie most evangelical Christians in knots if it came to debating the character and the being of God. Most times if the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons come to our door, we close the door in their faces because we don't know what to say to them because we're afraid that they'll tie us perhaps in knots. We've got a very dim and a very superficial view of God. The Bible says that God descended upon Mount Sinai in fire. Hebrews 12, 29 still stands, Our God is a consuming fire. Paul said to Timothy that our God dwells in light that no man can approach unto. That's why it says here that the whole mountain was in a smoke, just as Isaiah And Isaiah 6 saw the holiness of God. The temple was filled with smoke. And the whole mount quaked greatly. The awesome manifestation of God. The awful majesty of God. 
Dear friends of God, manifested his glory to us right now. We would be consumed in a moment of time. Such is the God that we serve. But one last thought as we think about this great earthquake. It speaks to us of the amazing mercy of God. The absolute morality of God. The awesome manifestation of God. The awful majesty of God. One last thing. Notice in verse 17, an assembly meeting with God. Verse 17, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. They stood afar off. But they were there. Why did Moses call them out of the camp? It was very simply, friends, to meet with God. God called Moses up into the mountain so that Moses could meet with God. And as Moses now comes down out of the mountain with the word from God, the whole assembly are there to meet with this almighty, unchangeable, everlasting glorious God that has redeemed them and has saved them. That's why we talk about meeting together, having a meeting. It's not so much about meeting with other Christians, but our purpose in meeting together, and I think sometimes we lose it, is to meet with God himself. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And I tell you, if we really understood who we're coming to meet with, there would be hard preparation. So much went on here by way of heart preparation as the children of Israel are about to meet with Almighty God. If you look there at verse 10, the Lord said unto Moses, Go on to the people, sanctify them today, and tomorrow, and tell them to wash their clothes. I'm going to meet with them on the third day. And they spent a couple of days getting ready to meet with God. And in verse number 14, Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. It's interesting that clothing is mentioned a couple of times here in this chapter with regards to meeting afresh with God. Now, many people try to make up all sorts of strange rules about what clothes people should wear in coming to meet with God. I think it's a very foolish thing to try to make up rules on things that the Word of God gives a certain level of liberty and latitude on. But certainly, there are guidelines whenever it comes to this very issue. God told the children of Israel there, I want you to wash your clothes as you come to meet with me. It is said of of Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, whenever he was going to go to Bethel, the house of God, that before he went there, he changed his clothes. And he asked his family to do the very same thing. The high priest in Israel had special garments that he wore as he went in to meet with God in the secret place. In fact, the children of Israel had little details in their clothing that distinguished them as being the people of God from the peoples of the world. The Bible speaks a little bit about the garments of salvation. It speaks as well about the clothing that Christ wore. 1 Peter chapter 2 and or 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Timothy 2 speak about modest apparel, modest clothing. The Word of God has a lot to say about our clothing. 
1 Corinthians 11 says that whenever men meet to worship God, they shouldn't do so with their heads covered. And conversely, it says that women should have their heads covered. So the Word of God has something to tell us about our approach to God. And even whenever God came to Adam and Eve in the garden, what did He do when He saved them? He changed their garments. They were covered in garments of their own making. And then the Lord clothed them with coats of skins. And sometimes in Scripture, the change of garments signifies a new beginning. And the children of Israel here are about to enter into a new beginning. The prodigal son, whenever he came home from the far country, received a change of clothes because it was a new beginning. The madman of the Gadarenes, when he met the Lord, was found sitting and clothed and in his right mind. It was a new beginning. And here's a new beginning for the children of Israel. And they had to wash their clothes. It speaks of coming before the Lord clean. Coming before the Lord washed and cleansed. And the Bible asks this question, who shall ascend into the hill of God? Who shall stand in the holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. God was bringing this people into a new place with himself. And I pray that in these days that we are living in, that God will bring each and every one of us into a new place with himself. That we will have a fresh vision of God as they did. A fresh word from God as they did. A fresh experience of God as they did. And a fresh touch from the Lord as they did. May God bless His word to your hearts this morning.